You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. Thanks to Concordia University, Wisconsin, for your support of The Coffee Hour. You can find out more about Concordia University, Wisconsin at cuw.edu. Live Uncommon. It's a great day to talk about our forefathers in the faith, uh, some of the saints that show up on our church calendar. Maybe you've seen some names on, I don't know, a church bulletin or, or a calendar and wondered who those people were. And today we get to talk about St. Athanasius of Alexandria, who uh, we commemorate in the Lutheran Church on May 2nd, which is his death date. Joining us to do that is Dr. Joel Alowski, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of International Seminary Exchange Programs at Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Dr. Alowski, thanks so much for joining us today. Oh, it's my pleasure to be with you. So we're going to, this This might just be a high-level conversation. I'm not sure that 25 minutes is going to be enough to cover <laughs> his entire life and influence on the church, but uh, this is going to be great to dig into St. Athanasius. Can you give us just um, a brief, maybe, overview of, of why we're even talking about Athanasius, who who he is? Well, first of all, I teach a course in it, so I think we should oh. do it just for that reason. <laughs> yes. But, yeah, no, uh, <laughs> uh, and the reason I, I teach a course on him in particular, I, I picked him out of the group of church fathers that I could talk about, is because of his important role in the, some of the Trinitarian controversies of the early church of the fourth century. So he's he's probably one of the seminal figures, one of the central figures, if you will, of that whole discussion. So sometimes he's referred to as Athanasius contra mundum, you know, Athanasius against the world, because he had to stand up against quite a bit of opposition to, uh, you know, present this doctrine that we take for granted today. So that's kind of where I would place him, you know, in the in terms of his significance. And, and, and then uh, we're going to dig into some of the controversy um, <laughs> that he dealt with in his, and that was going on in the church at that time. But let's let's start with his early life. What are some things that we know about his early life that are significant? You know, that's always a great question in church history because in one sense we can say we know nothing <laughs> because, <laughs> you know, we don't have that much um, material that um, actually was talks about his early life. But we do have a, a couple of things. I mean, he was probably born somewhere between – well, some say as early as 393, others around 396 to 398. You know, it's at the end of the, um, I'm sorry, 293. <laughs> I should clarify that. 293, 296, or 298. Um, we don't have any birth records, so we just, you know, they usually are more concerned about the day of their death than the day of their birth, because that's their translation into heaven, shall we say. But um, mm -hmm. at any rate, he would have been born shortly before the Diocletian persecutions. Um, his mother was uh, probably a pagan, somebody who was not a believer. Um, his dad was already probably uh, died shortly after he was born, so he was pretty much brought up by his mom. Um, and she um, made sure that, though he got instructed in the faith at some point, and we're not quite sure why that was, but um, we do know that that she was involved in getting him as a uh, trained by the bishop there in Alexandria named Alexander. They were real original in their names back then, you know. Um, <laughs> so uh, he probably was brought up uh, by the bishop in, uh, you know, in the parish there and learned a lot about um, scripture, but also probably the other kind of disciplines of the day. Um, it's interesting. There's one story we do have um, that uh, 
the bishop was looking outside his window and he saw these guys on the coast there, just some, uh, maybe teenagers, and they were they were playing church. You know, I used to like to do this with my sisters when I was a kid. <laughs> you know, and uh, in Athanasius's case, it actually um, he was baptizing uh, his friends, <laughs> and uh, the bishop was kind of surprised about this, so he actually called him into the the church and interviewed him about what he did. And the bishop said, well, you did everything correctly. These guys are baptized. So, you know, shows that he might have, you know, had a, uh, identified as a, as a pastor from early on that way. I, I think our recruiting people here at the seminary should use that story. Uh, but, uh, you know, he probably then was, as I say, brought up in the church, instructed by the bishop. He started out as a lector, in the church, which was basically the, the person who would read the scriptures during the service. And uh, usually these were younger people in their teens or maybe early 20s. Um, and so, you know, the, his, his life was pretty much a life within the church. Um, <clears throat> and uh, he um, became kind of, I would say, Alexander's right-hand man, kind of his assistant, if you will, even. And maybe he's even referred to as his secretary. Um, and he was elevated to a role as deacon, uh, sometime within that that period of his early life, sometime in the twenties. So, um, you know, but that's about all we know about his early life, at least. Um, <clears throat> you know, so that that would take us up to around, let's say, three eighteen or so. That he would be, uh, would be, um, well, yeah, kind of a Alexander's assistant, his um, secretary, who would take notes and also perhaps write some of his documents for him. Uh, yeah. Well, that's at least his early life. I could keep going. <laughs> sure. Yeah. How how did he? Uh, what happened from there? How did he kind of uh, become even more significant uh, in in church history at that time? Well, it, it is interesting because, as I told you, you know, he was he would have been a young boy during the time of the Diocletian persecutions, which went from about three hundred three, three hundred four to around three eleven. So um, he himself probably wasn't didn't have to experience that much, but. Um, his uh, his role with the bishop would have made him um, kind of given him an inside uh, position, shall we say, and even some of the authoritative issues that were going on at the time. Uh, uh, I suppose around 318, you know, um, this is after the time that Constantine uh, became emperor and um, pretty much defeated most of the, his opposition by that time. And you've got um, Constantine wanting to, you know, have a peaceable empire. He, he didn't want any uh, conflict. They'd just gone through a bunch of conflict through all the, you know, persecutions, but also kind of the civil wars and things. So Constantine is looking at his empire and saying, I want to, you know, have peace. Well, something started happening in uh, Alexandria around that time, around 318. There was this uh, presbyter who would be like a, Kind of in a position below a bishop but above a deacon, shall we say, kind of like your your suburban pastor. And um, <laughs> he had heard his, the bishop say something that he thought was a little bit heretical, so he called him out on it, which was a pretty uh, brave thing to do, maybe a stupid thing to do. I don't know. <laughs> but he uh, he basically uh, charged his bishop with uh, false teaching, and um, that became became kind of the controversy that uh, how should we say made history later on for the next. Um, 10, 15 years, you know, um, they start writing letters and Arius um, starts trying to drum up support for his um, charges against his bishop and um, the bishop has to respond. So you, you start getting sides being taken. Um, and so I suppose that is kind of the, the key issue, this issue between Arius and uh, 
his Bishop Alexander that consumed the church for quite some time. In fact, even in, until uh, Alexander's death in 328. So Athanasius would have been part of this whole thing, as I say, since he was the bishop's uh, right-hand man, really. Um, so what happens is Constantine ultimately decides to, to call a council, the Council of Nicaea in 325, um, to deal with this uh, division that had kind of blown up out of proportion. I mean, Constantine, frankly, thought it was just an argument over words. He didn't think it was that big of an issue. But he soon found out that it was not going to be resolved that simply. And uh, he had even sent some bishops, uh, one, if one from Spain named Hosius of Cordoba, to kind of resolve this, see if he could, talk with both sides, those kind of things. And um, none of that ended up working. So... Uh, he had to resolve this issue by calling the council, um, where there were bishops from all over the empire who were invited. It was kind of the first, I would say, um, council of this size and scope uh, to deal with not only this issue, but there were a couple other issues too. Uh, there was a bishop named Malicious who was ordaining bishops um, even when his own bishop was in jail uh, during the Diocletian persecution. So that caused some split in the church too. And then the church at this time couldn't agree on what date to celebrate Easter, so that was another reason to call the council. So quite a bit going on in the life of the church that um, Athanasius as a deacon wouldn't have had that much to say, frankly, except for the fact, as I say, that he was kind of a right-hand advisor to uh, Alexander and probably did um, inform much of that debate that happened at that council. So I'll stop there for a second because I know I gave you a whole bunch of <laughs> information there. But it's great That's information. Great. So what I'm hearing is that there has been controversy and conflict in the church throughout history, basically. How did um, what happened in this time, um, particularly with Athanasius and, and his work, um, how does that help us today address um, controversies and conflicts, particularly the, you know, those related to the ones he was addressing? Oh, sure. Well, I mean, I think the first thing, and this is what I always tell my students, I said, you know, when you get out there in the church and you see conflict, uh, you know, and it's going to be happening, don't be surprised by it. I mean, the church has gone through this before. And I will say some of these councils um, actually make our synodical uh, council, uh, you know, synodical conventions look quite tame, <laughs> you know, <laughs> in comparison. Some bishops even died at some of these council meetings, but well, uh, we don't have to go into that. <laughs> but uh, what is, you know, how does it help us today? I think, first of all, it... Um, what these councils, especially the Council of Nicaea, tells us is that truth is important. You know, um, granted, there were politics that went on at this conference, this council, just like um, they do almost at every every church council. I shouldn't say almost; they just do. Um, but they recognize the importance of uh, having a united front, shall we say, especially on issues of doctrine, and that um, that you don't. You don't compromise on doctrine. You know, I mean, there are different ways to say things, um, but I suppose in terms of when you look at how the, the church argued through this, it was very important for them to be able to hear all sides in the discussion. So, for instance, at the council itself, you know, there were no less than three creeds presented as possibilities to resolve this. Um, and as each one was presented, they realized it didn't quite cut it, you know. And um, when they finally came to the the 
the creed that was accepted, um, not everybody even accepted it. And um, the difficulty of this, of course, that we don't deal with quite today was that they had an emperor involved. And if an emperor, whoever had you uh, had him on his side, <laughs> that's probably the side that um, was going to find the enforcement of what they um, had agreed to. And um, it's Constantine is, is no exception to that. He, um, he came out on the side of uh, those who thought that um, there should be a phrase included in the creed, uh, the phrase in Greek, homoousios, which we say of one substance with the father in our kind of translation of that. That became kind of the phrase on which um, the whole controversy stood or fell. And so um, <clears throat> Constantine um, under, understood that this uh, phrase was uh, a phrase that best captured the relationship um, between um, the father and the son, which was really what this argument was all about. I kind of just jumped to you know Arius and himself, but to understand that this was a pretty important uh, topic for discussions, and it wasn't just argument over words, because they were talking about how do we regard the son in relationship to the father. I mean, everybody was agreed that the father was God. Um, to talk about the son as God brought a difficulty because, of course, the creed says there's only one God. So how can you talk about the son being God if you're talking about the father being God? Um, and Arius would have this interesting kind of um, thing that he would do in the marketplace. I mean, he was a very popular speaker. He was an older um, older uh, presbyter there. He was probably in his 60s, where Athanasius was in his 30s, you know. And um, Arius would go into the marketplace and he would he would talk to people about uh, the father and the son, and he would say, you know, were you, uh, were, um, did you exist before you had kids? And, of course, what would every parent say? You know, yeah, I remember those times. We call it BC, you know, before children. Now, those were the great, great times, you know. Uh, no, I love my kids. <laughs> but, um, you know, he'd say, so if you existed before you had kids, then doesn't it make sense that the father existed before the son, his son? To which the parents would say, well, I guess so, you know. So therefore, he would say, then the son must be a lesser being than the father, because there was a time, there was when he was not. That was his phrase that he would say over and over, you know. He'd even make songs about it called the Thalia, or banquet pieces. So this was a, you know, very logical kind of a, Question, wouldn't you say? I mean, how would you answer that? You would probably wouldn't just agree with him at that point. <laughs> they did. <laughs> now you can't say that I know on the radio, so uh, <laughs> but, uh, I, I get it. You'd probably be fired if you said that. But um, you know, they they pretty much all thought, okay, you know. So how do you answer that kind of a, a syllogism? Uh, well, Athanasius and uh, company had a good answer for that, and they said, well. You know, it's true that uh, earthly parents live before their children, but we're not talking about earthly parents here. We're talking about God, you know. And um, so a better question to ask is, um, you know, uh, has there ever been a time when uh, God was not father? You know, how does, how does Scripture refer to him? It always refers to him as father. When we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, Our Father, who art in heaven, right? And so... Um, can you be a father, he would ask, without having children? And, of course, the answer is no. You know, and he would ask it more specifically, can you be a father without having a son? Uh, you know, and, of course, the answer is no. Therefore, 
the father was since the father has always existed, his son has always existed. And he's always been father and his son has always been son. And that's where we get that phrase in the creed that says he's eternally begotten of the father, you know, because uh, he's always been a son and his father has always been father. Um, and so, you know, Athanasius and company decided to use the biblical language there of how is God spoken about? Well, he's spoken about his father, son, and then, of course, spirit later on, too. We had, they had to argue about that, too. So let me stop there a second and see if you have any uh, questions. Oh, yes. <laughs> Lots of things to talk about. <laughs> uh, we need to take a quick break, though. We will be right back uh, to dig into some more about St. Athanasius as the church commemorated him on his death date, May 2nd. So much good stuff here talking with Dr. Joel Olowski from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. You're listening to The Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. You're a miracle. You know that, right? A living, breathing, one-of-a-kind miracle. You were created to stand apart, to share your gifts in the service of others, to make an uncommon impact in a common world. And at Concordia University, it's our mission to help you do that, to live uncommon. To learn more about Concordia, go to cuw.edu. Welcome back to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. We are digging into St. Athanasius, uh, the church history, his legacy, all of these uh, great things today with Dr. Joel Olowski from Concordia Seminary in St. Louis. Uh, before we went to break, we were talking about uh, the theology, the legacy of, of what happened during his time in church history. Um, and Dr. Olowski, where do we see the legacy of all of these conflicts and all of these things that happened uh, during the time of Athanasius? Where do we see that legacy now in our Lutheran church and our, and our, our um our life of the church today? Yeah, thank you. That's a great question. Um, I suppose one of the most concrete places you see it is um, every Sunday, um, for those who, uh, you know, we have the Nicene Creed in our uh, liturgy that we confess, and um, we look at those words, and I think we just kind of say them and take them for granted and don't recognize just how much uh, thought and argument and um, scriptural study and prayer went into each of those phrases that we say on Sunday morning. So when I think about our Lutheran church in particular, I see how much we have benefited from Athanasius just liturgically in the in the creeds that we say, in the, the blessings that we give. Um, I mean, this was a big point with Athanasius, even, you know, talking about in terms of when you give a blessing or um, baptize someone, you baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. And if any of one of, one of those three are not God, then you have just brought into um, question your baptism. You've brought into question those blessings that were given. Uh, and so I see that as kind of one of the most concrete, shall we say, manifestations of Athanasius uh, in our liturgical life and in our theological life as Lutherans. Um, we, of course, could, you know, kind of talk about when a Jehovah's Witness knocks on your door, you know, and they'd love to say that, well, you Christians, you know, you uh, and you Lutherans in particular have this 
something that was introduced in the fourth century to the church, you know, to which I reply, well, actually, you're the ones who introduced something into the church in the fourth century, and your father is Arius, you know, so have a nice day. And, you know, they don't, they don't come by my door anymore to visit, which I miss that, you know. But, um, you know, both of those are, I would say, um, very important for the legacy of the, of the church today. And uh, even here on Concordia Seminary campus, we have an arch that has a commemoration to Athanasius. You know, uh, mm-hmm. it actually has a plaque on there. And, um, and it does have that phrase I mentioned earlier, the contramundum, you know, against the world. And what Athanasius teaches us today is that... Um, you know, um, we are to be in the world, but not of the world. And we are to recognize when the world um, is um, speaking against our faith and be strong enough in that faith uh, to be able to, um, you know, speak truth to power, speak truth to our culture, even at times, even as we do so, of course, you know, to win them over, which um, I think Athanasius often tried to do. And when he, when he, uh, Sometimes uh, got a little aggressive, though, in it, too. Uh, there's no doubt about that. But those are three things that I would see as kind of a, his legacy for the church today. I could probably name more, but <laughs> leave it at that. So what, if any, influence or, or, or what is his connection to the Athanasian Creed uh, that we yeah. probably get to, to uh, share at least once a year, right? That's right. Yeah. And uh, hopefully at least you'd get to it at least that often. (laughs) But uh, yeah, the Athanasian Creed was, uh, it got, it got named after him, but uh, he's most likely not the author. Um, It's another one of those things where we don't know who the author is. Uh, Some have thought it could be Augustine, others Prosper of Aquitaine. Um, Any number of people have been brought up as possible authors, but the question then becomes, well, why do they call it the Athanasian Creed? And it, it's because it spells out in such detail that, um, you know, the, the doctrine of the Trinity, which became associated with Athanasius, that uh, it was important that, um, you know, it have kind of this authoritative uh, provenance, shall we say. And so Athanasius kind of became identified with that creed just because of uh, the clear true confession of the Trinity that it gave. Um, So that's about the best we can do on that because we don't, I mean, most of these creeds, we don't know who the author is. You know, they're usually kind of um, maybe proposed by somebody, but probably done more by committee, including the uh, Nicene Creed, which we really should call the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed. (laughs) I hate to say that, but it's not only hate to say it, it's just historically accurate. The creed that was decided at Nicaea was uh, shorter than the creed we say today. So there are probably some people in your churches who'd want to go back to that to cut the service down, time down, you know. But in actuality, the the creed was added to in 381 to speak about the doctrine of the Holy Spirit, which, uh, as I've mentioned before, was also something Athanasius taught that um, after the time where they um, argued about the son's relationship to the father, they had about 50 years of discussion on the, the spirit's role to the father and the son, his relationship to them. And that got included then in that creed of Nicaea and Constantinople, shall we say, in 381. So um, it's uh, interesting to see how that all develops. But that's something probably a lot of people don't know is that the creed we confess is really um, – is the product of two church councils, uh, Nicaea in 325 and Constantinople in 381. Why is it useful for us uh, to understand this history, to understand where these creeds that we confess all the time, most of us probably have them memorized. Why is it it, uh, important for us to understand that the church history that that is behind these, all of these things that happened in our history that that, uh, produced what we uh, confess today in our church services? 
Right. Well, I, I think it, it's helpful to remind ourselves that the Holy Spirit has a history, you know, that he has uh, been involved in the life of the church throughout. And uh, sometimes we get this impression in our churches that, um, you know, the we had the Church of the New Testament, and then it went off the rails for the next 1,500 years, and then Martin Luther set everything right again, you know. And um, <laughs> I, I would um, say church history tells us that, no, there were faithful believers throughout all of this, and um to recognize that the theology that we have today, you know, we take it for granted. But um, a lot of these things went through a lot of uh, discussion, a lot of conflict even, um, because the church understood these were uh, central issues to the life of the church and to the life of each Christian. I mean, we're talking about our salvation here. I mean, you know, that, that phrase that's in our creed, who for us and for our salvation came down from heaven, that's really what was at stake in these discussions. And we we kind of look at it as a bunch of dry doctrine we learned in confirmation class. <laughs> but in actuality, um, this is at the heart and core of our relationship with our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why to know the history that goes into this uh, helps us, I think, not only treasure these uh, doctrines that we just kind of take for granted, but also shows that, um, you know, that they are incarnational in that sense. Uh, and what I mean by that is that, um, you know, our doctrine has a history to it in the sense that the church has always confessed these things, even in the New Testament. And I would say these are simply clarifications of what uh, what we learn from both Old and New Testament from the scripture itself that uh, the church still believes and confesses today, 1,500 years, 2,000 years later shows us that Jesus Christ truly is the same yesterday, today, and forever, which, of course, is the theme for our seminary this year, too. <laughs> Absolutely. There's so much more we could dig into. Uh, do you have any resources, if people are, are now super interested in Athanasius, which I hope they are, any resources where people can read more about the, the life and work of Athanasius? Yeah, in fact, if I had to suggest one work in particular, it was Athanasius's work. It's called On the Incarnation. Okay, and uh, you can find that St. Vladimir's Press is the one that has uh, probably the most accessible translation. Uh, and it has a foreword by C.S. Lewis, who mm. says you should read, uh, for every new book you read, you should read uh, three old books, which I would also agree with. So um, I think that would be a, probably a helpful resource. And then there's also a book by Khalid Anatolius called Athanasius in the Routledge series that gives a nice introduction and some samples of his uh, writings, too, that would probably be helpful as an introduction. Uh, there's lots of other stuff out there, but uh, maybe I'll just stop with those, too. And, um, you know, we've got a whole encyclopedia that I worked on that has an article on him, too. So um, <laughs> I think those are all things out there. Fantastic. Uh, talking today with Dr. Joel Olowski, Professor of Historical Theology and Coordinator of International Seminary Exchange Programs at Concordia Seminary, St. Louis. Thanks so much for joining us today on the Coffee Hour to talk about St. Athanasius. Oh, it's been my pleasure. Thank you. You're listening to the Coffee Hour. I'm Sarah Golseth. I'm Andy Bates. The Coffee Hour with Andy and Sarah is a production of KFUO. To support the Coffee Hour and KFUO Radio, visit KFUO.org. You can also text KFUO to 41444 or send an email to gifts at KFUO.org. And you can call us at 800-844-0524. KFUO. Christ for you anytime, anywhere. Anywhere.